The Real Estate Sessions is brought to you by Relola. The Relola app helps agents leverage their local expertise. Create a beautiful interactive map of everything you love about your community, from businesses to listings to local features. Share it on Facebook and your website. And it's free for all realtors in 2018. Learn more at relola.com. There's always been a certain level of disruption in real estate. Ever since I started, there, there was, you know, the doomsday approach of, you know, the next disruptor is going to change the industry for good and, and you know, make uh, the brokerages obsolete and all that. Well, that's never happened, really. Um, you know, I think certain companies couldn't necessarily survive it, but every other, you know, a lot of other companies have thrived. And I think there's a place for disruption. Welcome to the Real Estate Sessions podcast, where industry leaders share their stories and offer tips and advice for real estate professionals. Now your host, Bill Rissa of Fidelity National Title in Tampa, Florida. Hi, everybody. Welcome to episode 136 of the Real Estate Sessions podcast. Thank you so much for tuning in. Thank you for sharing it with a friend. Uh, we keep growing and I, I think that's great. I, I love finding out about people in the industry. And today, it's going to be quite different for me. This is the first time I've had somebody who works on the financial side of things. We're talking about mergers and acquisitions and and uh, valuations of real estate companies. This is going to be a lot of fun. So uh, Ryan Malone of Clayton and Company Consulting is going to join us. Ryan, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Bill. It's a pleasure to be here. Now, I know you currently work out of New York City. Uh, is Are you a local? Or are you native there? I am. I uh, born and raised in uh, Totowa, New Jersey, which is a little town outside of New York City. Um, lived there all my life. I actually moved uh, further away from the city uh, about 15 years ago up in a, a town called Oak Ridge. And I'm um, raising my family here and, and love New Jersey through and through. So I, I've got to ask this question whenever I talk to uh, someone from Jersey or New York. It, it's either going to be Jets, Giants, Mets, you know, Yankees, I don't know, Nets, you know, Knicks. Which, what's, what are your teams? Well, that's, that's an interesting question because I am probably one of the few people that do not follow any of the local sports teams. I, I All my favorite teams in all the sports are, are throughout the country, and they're in uh, towns like Miami for football and the Cubs for baseball and the Lakers for basketball. So I was kind of the odd man out in uh, growing up. So I just kind of think that's got to kind of be odd. I can imagine in elementary school, most kids are just kind of squaring off, you know, probably based on their parents. You know, I'm a Mets guy, I'm a Yankees guy, and here you are throwing out the Cubs. Yeah, exactly. I, I think I was always kind of going against the grain, whether I knew it or not. And uh, I chose the Cubs and not knowing at the time that I'd be in for many, many years of pain and suffering. But uh, fortunately, the last couple of years have been pretty good for the Cubs. So I've, uh, I've kind of uh, felt a lot of a lot of joy that I didn't have when I was growing up. Uh, hats off to you because I don't know how you you don't support the Yankees. I mean, I'm, like I'm not a Yankee guy by any stretch, <laughs> but with 27 you know championships and that whole run you know through the early 90s, late 90s. I'm sorry, uh, yikes! So good for you. Good for sticking to your guns. Now I know you uh, left the tri-state area for a little bit. Didn't you attend Florida Atlantic down here in Florida for a little while? I did. I did. I, I spent two years down in Florida, um, went to school at Florida, Florida Atlantic, very small school at the time. It was a commuter school. Um, they've since kind of grown and uh, they're a little bit, bit more recognized and known. But um, yeah, I loved it down there for a couple of years and, and then eventually transferred to Villanova. And that's where I got my degree in finance. 
So we happen to be recording this episode on day one of the NCAA basketball tournament. You have to be, well, let's see, excited and and maybe with cautious optimism looking at Villanova's track record lately. <laughs> exactly. Cautious optimism is the exact word because, you know, I think if we get past the second round, we usually make a deep run. And uh, just the last four years, we had that magical, great run where we won it in probably one of the best finals ever. And yeah. then, you know, the next year we come out and get bounced in the second round. So that's the key. We got to get past this weekend. I don't know if it's a jinx for you or not. So here's my, my one thing that I grew up in San Diego and somehow became a Duke fan. But I'll let you know this. I took Duke in one of my brackets, but I have Villanova win in the other. So I don't know if that's good or bad for you because I usually don't do very well in the brackets. But, but I'm pulling for him. <laughs> I'm pulling for him as much as you are. <laughs> good luck. Well, you got to spread out your risk. I think that's the key. You always spread out your risk when you're doing those pools. Now we're talking finance. So let's go straight to there. Let's talk about as you're in school, as you're uh, studying and, and you know, if you know finance is in your future, um, what was the career you were thinking you were going to go into? Because I just got to imagine it wasn't real estate. No, it wasn't necessarily real estate. And, and you know, growing up in, in high school, as far back as I can remember, I always wanted to be on Wall Street, stockbroker. Stock broker. That was my goal until I really found out what a stockbroker did. And then I was like, you know what? That's not necessarily for me. Um, so it, it kind of shifted when I was in college to, to focus on more corporate finance and mergers and acquisitions. And it was kind of the perfect match. And what's good about corporate finance and, and mergers and acquisitions is it's portable through many industries. So, you know, you could either go the investment banking route or you can join a, a company like I did uh, right out of school with Realogy, um, where they are doing mergers and acquisitions. So it gave me a kind of a, a, a kind of a lot of options and, and more optionality than maybe a stockbroker might someone on Wall Street. Gotcha. So I, I like that about uh, about finance. So let's let's talk about the, the the structure of of the company you joined because I think we all heard the names. We've all heard NRT and Realogy and all this stuff, but I think you'll be able to give us a really clear look at um, what they were, how they were structured, right? So. You, when you start with in in the industry, you're at NRT, correct? That's the name of the company at the time. Is that am I right? Let's see if I'm right there before I go any further. Yes, that, that's exactly right. NRT. Right. So, and and tell me what your role was at NRT when you got when you started. So it was right out of school. Um, you know, six months outside of college, I had, I had a job that I didn't really love um, doing financial reporting, and this opportunity came up with NRT. And it was a merger and acquisitions opportunity within a company, which was, to me, kind of the perfect fit, um, as, as opposed to going the investment banking route where you work 24 hours a day and you're burned out by the time you're 30. This seemed like a, a good fit because it was, um, you know, at the time, NRT was much smaller. Um, however, they were growing and they were growing by leaps and bounds and they were doing it through acquisitions. That was their, their core, their, their core function. So when I joined them as a financial analyst in the M&A group, that's all I did. Uh, you know, we, we closed, when I first started, almost a deal per week. And, you know, acquiring a company per week, I mean, that's a very high rate of acquisition for, for any industry, of course. Um, right. But I was doing the number crunching. I was the guy, you know, analyzing the companies as they came in. I've just got to guess, I know here for us, if we want to grow market share at our little operation on the West Coast of Florida for Fidelity, 
we purchase a title agency and we incorporate them into us. Mm-hmm. It's, it's a surefire way to guarantee growth and market share. The same thing must have been true for NRT at that time, right? Yeah, I think that was the thought and that was the strategy. And, you know, now it doesn't come without risk, of course. Mm-hmm. Um, it's certainly a way to grow market share quickly and efficiently. Um, but, you know, as in, in you know, real estate, as you know, the agents are the assets and agents, you know, have the ability to you know, go wherever they want. They're independent contractors. So it was, it was a more risky if you look at it from that perspective, but it was certainly an efficient uh, and quick way to, to grow your market share. Let's get geeky and into the numbers. Can, let's talk about, as, as an analyst, you had to figure out what exactly was the worth and, and what were the positives and negatives, I would imagine, of a company that was presented to you that uh, they said, hey, we're thinking about acquiring this company. Let's, let's check them out. Talk about that analysis of a potential uh, M&A transaction. Sure. There's, um, you know, there's a subjective side to it as well. So there's, of course, the objective side where you're looking at the numbers and you're figuring out you know, based upon the size of the company, um, what kind of uh, synergy, you know, when two companies come together, what kind of synergy there can be on the expense side. But beyond the objective side, there's the subjective side. And there was nothing more important, I felt, and it still holds true to this day, in bringing two companies together than the culture. And the culture meant just as much, if not more, than, than the numbers, because without having a company um, that overlaps with you culturally, you're not going to have the success. As I kind of talked about before, it's, there's risk in, in acquiring uh, assets that have legs. And if you don't have um, that cultural alignment, then you know, you're, you're bound for failure. And I think you know, in, my, in my mind, when I was first started there, you know, you're coming out of school, you're in finance, you're thinking, okay, well, this is, this is how you do it. It's all about the numbers and you use a multiple and a formula. But I learned very quickly that the, the personal side of it, the subjective side of it was just as important. And um, that's, I think, the key. And it, it holds true for sure until this day. Maybe even more so today. Is that, is that a safe, fair assessment? It, absolutely. And I think that's the reason for that is, as, as you know, I'm sure you've had many people on that talk about the different platforms that are out there for real estate companies. The the disruptor the disruptors in the industry, you know, run run the gamut in in the style of, of business that they run. So you know now with so many different platforms out there, whether it's a hundred percent shop or a, a capped model or a traditional brokerage or or however you want to look at it or an employee based uh, model, they're all out there now. So if you're an acquirer, you know there's there's you know that whole world has changed and it's expanded. And you really need to kind of focus on the right company that fits your organization um, and, and you're going to bring them in-house. That, that's certainly the key more so now than ever. Let's talk about that process of identifying culture. How, how did you do that? You know, a lot of it is speaking with, with ownership, um, you know, understanding first and foremost, you know, what a company's commission schedule is like, what a company's fee structure is like. Um, but conversations with the ownership group uh, was was key, and we we had you know a, a huge base of operations NRT as as I kind of grew in my career with them. Um, but every company had a local leadership group that would sit down with owners and and myself as well, either on a on conference call or in person, 
to really understand what it is about this, this company that makes it work. So why, why is that company successful? What do they do? And sometimes what do they do differently than what we did? And, and again, when I'm representing somebody from the buy side in, in this world right now, it's the same conversation. You have to sit with them. You have to look them in the face. It's still a personal business. So I think that is really important. And that's how you really get to know uh, what potential differences, what culture differences there could be between the companies. There's a conversion rate in everything that everybody does, right? Even in your world, there had to be, it wasn't 100% of the companies you were going to acquire, you acquired when you were working this role at NRT. what, What was like the average rate where if you were going to uh, you know analyze 20 um, companies how many of those would you end up acquiring yeah I, I think uh, a good kind of rule of thumb is at least in my role where I was we would look at you know 10 to find one so you're looking at uh-huh. a 10 percent rate and that might even be high it really depends on the market too I mean when when we were acquiring a deal a week um, close to that rate, of course, that percentage of what you looked at was going to be, you know, the conversion rate was going to be a lot higher. But as you started to saturate the market and, as, you know, the cyclicality of real estate goes up and down, different markets are going to yield different results there. But you have to really look because, again, if you're looking at the right for the right fit, you know that you're going to go through a group of companies that aren't the right fit. And then there's going to be certain companies where um, the financials didn't just just didn't work or where the expectations of what the seller was looking for in, in purchase price wasn't there. So there's so many reasons why a deal might not happen. Uh, you're, you're probably looking at a very low percentage overall. Uh, you, you look, I looked at thousands of companies in my, my history with, with um, Realogy. And, you know, of, of course, a small fraction of those actually closed. Let me, I'm going to put you on the spot a little bit. Let's, let's say I own a brokerage with 30 agents and like any brokerage, maybe five are really producing. Is that fair? <laughs> and the rest are, you know, a little bit on a lower level. How, how do you begin to even um, come up with an offer for, for uh, say, a company of that size? And, and it, like, let's play around with numbers and just kind of say, you know, Bill, if it was a typical brokerage with 30 agents that were, you know, and they were producing at a certain level, we would offer this much. Yeah, so so you know that that's kind of a loaded question, right? Because every company is different as far yeah. as productivity goes and profitability. So what we would do, and what I still do today, is you start by taking a company's profit and loss statement, you adjust it for the kind of personal non-recurring expenses that every small business owner has. So you're trying to get to the adjusted or true cash flow of the business. And then you look at the quality of that cash flow. So the quality of the earnings is, is important. You can't just look at that number. And to your point where you mentioned five out of 30 do all the production, I'm going to look at that. And, and that's a risk factor. So if, if you know, the concentration is the top five agents do 80% of the business, well, that puts more risk on the buyer because if one or two of those agents leave, the value has clearly been eroded. So it, it factors in. So once you get to the P&L and you look at the, the, the earnings, you want to look at the quality of those earnings, the sustainability of those earnings. And that's where you start to get into, well, okay, now I can assess how much this company is worth because I feel comfortable or don't feel comfortable, depending on the situation, of what I can, what I can actually achieve 
from buying this company? What can I actually return from buying this company? Are real estate multiples, you know, when you when you set a value of a company, are they um, unique to real estate? Are they kind of like every every company has kind of the same number? There, you know, they, there is a range. There, there's a wide range, and that's why when when a person asks, you know, what is, what are the multiples or what is my company worth? It's it's not a question that can be easily answered because there's right. so many factors that go into it. I mean, there's a general range. So the general range is three to five times. Okay. okay. Mm-hmm. Can you go above that? Of course. Um, you can also go below, depending upon the risk level and the quality of the company you're looking at. And that, in, in this industry, compared to other industries, is low. Uh, if you look at other industries, you can pay eight times, ten times. It just, again, it depends upon the type of industry. And I think the reason for that is if you look at real estate as a business, as I mentioned, the risk factors that are in the business with the agent portability, um, the cyclicality of the business, and just those factors alone um, dictate where the multiples will kind of fall. And that's why in real estate, the multiples are, are generally lower than maybe some other industries that people are, are used to seeing. Let's, let's um, talk about Realogy and, and how they entered the picture in 2007. Can you kind of lay that out for us? Yeah, sure, sure. I mean, you know, NRT was was part of Sendent, um, and you know, we we did very well uh, acquiring a lot of companies for for Sendent through NRT. So NRT became Realogy uh, after Sendent spun off its, its business units. And once Realogy was was created, they needed a a acquisition group, and NRT had their own acquisition group. And it just made natural sense to use what we had, um, that machine that we had built through NRT, and use it across all of all religious business units. So what, what became uh, of the NRT M&A group became the Realty Strategic Development Group, which then handled all acquisitions across Cardis, TRG, Realty Franchise Group, and of course, NRT, which still existed. Um, and then we started looking at not just brokerage acquisitions, but, but acquisitions for all the business units, you know, as well as strategic investments and other things that that Realogy wanted to do in the space, in the real estate space. So I'm guessing you like this. This was great for you, right? To have things change up a little bit, and you actually took on more, um, more of a more of a role uh, with the Realogy Group, correct? Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. I kind of grew, and again, I, I was there for for almost 17 years. And the last five years, I, I was running the group, uh, you know, as, as VP of the group. And what I really liked about my role uh, when, once I got to that point was it, it, it combined the, the kind of steady nature of doing some uh, real estate brokerage acquisitions with a lot of other different, unique types of investments that kind of came across my desk. So everything that kind of came from the outside world. Uh, would come in through, you know, that somebody wanted Realogy to look at or Realogy to buy, came through my group, and it allowed me to kind of look at a lot of different types of companies, whether it was a title company, uh, a relocation opportunity, uh, companies in the technology space, and as you know, um, real estate right now is ripe for different technology companies with, with different products and services, and it was just really interesting and allowed me to learn a lot about uh, that part of the of the real estate space. Today, you're now consulting with um, the real estate world, with with companies and brokerages, and and doing the same sorts of things, right? Helping with a, a valuation for maybe an owner that wants to sell. Um, it could even be, I, I can imagine, 
you know, in a local market, somebody trying to, you know, acquire a competitor. And so is, is this a busy time in that space for you right now? It really is. Um, and, and what I do like about it is now I get to see the other side. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I spent, you know, all my career, just about all my career on the buy side, you know, I, I for NRT and for, for Realogy. And, you know, the services that kind of I provide now are all the things that I used to do, whether it's the valuations for owners that need to know or just want to know the value of their business. Um, to representing buyers, as you mentioned, there there are several buyers out there that you know, they don't necessarily know how to go about acquiring. They they want to acquire, they want to grow their market share, but they don't necessarily know how to go about it. And it's almost like renting an M and A shop. So you know you 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 work with a buyer on a strategy, and then you target companies within that that fit that strategy in the market that they want to grow in, and you guide them through the process. You know, you, you do the valuations for targets, you do the, the letters of intent and the negotiations, and then you also work on the transition for them, you know, the integration, the most important part, of course, you want to work with them on that as well. And then, as I say, on the other side, I also get to represent sellers that, that want to sell um, their business, which is exciting because, you know, again, when you're on the buy side for so long, you'll, you lose touch a little bit with you know the things that are important to the seller because you're only thinking of it from one from one angle, um, and it allows me to kind of think about it from from a totally different perspective, and it's exciting. It's good. It's great. You know, a thought comes to mind that I, I want to know if this has happened yet. H- have you represented a seller that you tried to acquire <laughs> in the past? Actually, yes. Yeah, that, yeah. that's that. It's it's so funny because you know you you build a lot of relationships over the years, and you know, you come to respect a lot of people out in the industry and, and you know, the guys we mentioned before, you look at a thousand companies and only a hundred of them close. So you have all those other relationships that didn't work out as far as buying them for whatever reason. And that was really important for me to kind of keep that network close to me. And, you know, I think I built a healthy kind of level of respect with a lot of the owners that, that I worked with over the years. Um, so, yeah, so it, it does come around that way where, you know, now it might be the right time for them and, and now it might work for them. And I certainly can assist them in that process. And to have your knowledge about what what the big brands who obviously do most of the acquiring, what their thought mm-hmm. process is and what they're looking for, you can definitely set up a seller for success. I can see that playing out. Yep, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, it's, 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 been a, it's been helpful from that perspective because I think it holds a lot of credibility and I have to, you know, owe it to the career that I built with Realogy, you know, to Realogy that, that gave me that opportunity. Yeah. Let's just talk a little bit about the word disruption. Maybe it's overused, maybe not. Um, but there's some um, uh, huge money being thrown, you know, from Wall Street, Silicon Valley, whatever you want to call it, into, you know, companies like Open Door, OfferPad, Knock. I mean, Compass alone, who's not a different than the three I mentioned, but Compass getting $750 million, right? Yeah. Venture capital. That's shocking, right? That that one certainly was. I yeah. mean, you know, look, Compass has the pedigree and, and they had that, um, the pitch that, that allowed them to kind of sell themselves um, over the years. And they've grown leaps and bounds, of course. And now that they have $750 million, they can certainly grow further. It was very impressive and shocking that they were able to to do that. 
and, and just disruptors all, you know, just all in. I mean, there is a, there is a lot of private equity money being thrown around. Um, and I don't say that disparagingly um, because, you know, a lot of these companies have a lot of really innovative, cool ideas that are, are changing the industry. Um, there's always been a certain level of disruption in real estate. Ever since I started, there, there was, you know, the doomsday approach of, you know, the next disruptor is going to change the industry for good and, you know, make uh, the brokerages obsolete and all that. Well, that's never happened, really. Um, you know, I think certain companies couldn't necessarily survive it, but every other, you know, a lot of other companies have thrived. And I think there's a place for disruption. And I think disruption actually helps because it, it helps establish companies innovate. It forces them to innovate and to change uh, and if they don't, they, they won't necessarily survive. So I think disruption to a certain extent is, is positive for a lot of the traditional brokerages. Yeah, I think you talk about that. Gary Keller, he had a heck of a video <laughs> at, uh, at the Family <laughs> Reunion talking about what their goal is. The new CEO of Realogy, right? Um, is, is it yeah. Schneider? I want to make sure I've got the right name. Yeah, Ryan Schneider. Yeah, Ryan Schneider. I saw him at Inman Connect talking as well. They realize, these are people who realize that it just can't be the way it's been, that there's got to be um, some um, response to, to what these other people are doing. And which is, I think what you're saying is, yeah, they've kind of always been that way. Now there's, they could have been slower moving, but it feels like they're going to be more quick to respond to these kinds of, uh, you know, activities. Does that sound right? I think companies are realizing that the slow way of, of moving and changing and innovating, you know, they, they called it innovation, you know, years ago, but it was was it really innovation? I, I think it was um, the reaction, or more reactive than than being uh, progressive, right? And right. and being ahead of the curve. And I think now those large companies are are seeing that and saying, no, we we have to be ahead of the curve. And you know, think about all the technology that that's out there that can change the game for for real estate agents and brokers. You know whether it's artificial intelligence or whether it's predictive analytics, you know, the things that, that you know, people talk about in a lot of other industries are making their way into to real estate, which is exciting. And, and if you're going to be in the space right now, it's, it's a great time to be in the space if you're into the, the change and kind of thinking about what's next and what's in the future for, for real estate. It's an exciting yeah. time. Yeah. I, I have to add, did you hear what Peter Flint said at, in Inman um, when Brad was talking to him and asking about will uh, will the big brands survive or die? And Flint's response was, well, I'm sure sent not. I wouldn't send shockwaves. I think the companies aren't that you know, worried about Peter. But it was he basically said that that the the industry is a slow moving um, industry, and that if he had to project out in the next ten years, he thinks um, many of them will die. I mean, it's one of those predictions that. Will anybody remember if it's wrong, right? Right, so, right yeah. You know, it, 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 it's, it's like, you know, when I, I you look at investing and, and I do a little bit of that too in, in the stock market and, you know, there, there are a lot of bearish calls, you know, where the, the market will, will turn and there will be a, a bear market and, you know, there will be a crash and they're eventually right, right? Because everything works in cycles. But I think in this case, you know, I think maybe it's, his point would be if companies did nothing or if companies didn't, you know, go with the flow and make changes that will put them in a position to succeed um, and change with, with all, 
all the innovations happening, then they would. But I don't think that's going to happen just because I think people understand the people in leadership roles understand that there has to be change, you know, and there have, have to be things that they do to make the value proposition of whatever they're proposing, whatever they're offering to their, their, you know, agents and brokers, it has to be of value. And if it's not, then of course they will lose. And uh, I think that's uh, understood by a lot of executives these days. Well, Ryan, I, I thank you for your time today. This has been great. And I'm going to give you the final question I've asked every guest. Now, I've never sold real estate. You've never sold real estate, but we both have opinions on this question. I'm going to let you give yours. Um, what, what's one piece of advice you would give a new agent just getting started in the business? So that's actually a really good question. Um, you know, I've kind of thought about this, you know, from, from my perspective as a, a finance person or as an M&A valuation expert. Um, and I think that an agent has always been told to build a book of business. And in, in doing that, they use all the different avenues that are at their fingertips today, including social media, um, you know, and their marketing, their personal marketing. And because the trend for agents to become eventually become teams, uh, that will allow them, hopefully in the future, to be able to monetize that book of business. So if you build a book of business that's sustainable, that you can actually show there's an inherent referral system in there um, that allows you to, to recognize, you know, referrals into the future, you can actually take that book of business and, and sell it to somebody. And I think that's maybe could be the next step. You know, as these teams um, build and grow, they might want to turn that into to a, a business that they can actually sell. And it's never really been thought of that way before because you always value a company. But there, there are ways, and, and it's something that I've been kind of kicking around, there are ways to value a book of business for an individual agent or team. And I think uh, if you as an agent early on are able to, um, to build that and, and kind of look at it through that lens, you might be able to monetize that at some point in the future. I love that answer. I, I had a guest on the podcast, and I can't remember the episode, somewhere in the 40s. His name is Nick Crowder. He's um, out of Portland, a KW agent. He wrote a book called The Golden Handoff. And you need to read that book because it's really, it, it talks about this process. And he built a business by finding agents that um, had nice, you know, um, spheres or books mm -hmm. of business that were aging out and didn't really have an exit strategy, right? Because they weren't thinking the way you're right. telling to think at, at the beginning. Um, and then he was able to work out a basically an annuity, right? That um, had a sliding scale 100%. of, yeah, a sliding scale of commissions over time, but it, but he got the warm intro from them that this is my new person. And, and he put him into his, you know, well-oiled machine and then converted even more than they were converting because he was really paying attention to these people. So I couldn't agree with you more. I, I know when I talk to realtors, I, I tell them all day long, that database, that's the value of what you got. You've got to make sure you're taking care of it. Yet, so many of them Absolutely. don't have it. They just don't have it in a place they could grab it. So I love that. Well, it's, it's, that entrepreneur, it's the entrepreneurial nature of the business, though. You know, yeah. it, if you work for a company all your life, you know, you save money and you, you have that retirement horizon where, you know, you will be able to realize that. And if you own a company, you can potentially monetize it and cash out. But you're looking at that, that, like you said, the agent isn't necessarily thinking that way. And if they start to think that way, you know, I think good things will come because they, they will want that security, you know, and be able to potentially walk away and have an annuity on some, on some level. So yeah. I think it's, 
yeah, it's really interesting. I should look at that book for sure. Yeah, that's great. Well, Ryan, um, if someone wants to reach out to you, get in touch with you, what's the best way for them to do that? Yeah, so um, so I, I, my email is Ryan D, as in Devin, my middle name, uh, Malone, M-E-L-O-N-E, at gmail.com. Um, if you reach out to me, I can certainly have a confidential conversation if anyone's looking to, um, to potentially you know, utilize my service. Uh, or just wants to have a conversation. I've, I've had plenty of conversations with people that were just curious and want to just chat about, you know, M&A and how it all works. And I'd be happy to do that as well. Ryan, thank you so much for your time. Uh, thanks for letting us get geeky and numbery. And well, I know I know it's easy for you, but not so easy for me. But it was a lot of fun. I really appreciate your time. No, thanks, Bill. It was great. I hope I didn't bore anyone out there, but uh, it was a pleasure. <laughs>